0: Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. If you have your Bible in hand, turn to Genesis thirty-nine. I realize that you're not bringing your Bibles like you used to because we make it easy. We put everything on the wall, and and you don't have to have your Bible. But I want to encourage you to always bring your Bible. You should just be in that habit. Bring your Bible. I know some of you look it up on your phone, and that's cool too. Um, but it's just I, I, the tactile thing, the tactile thing where you can have it in your hands and underline. And there's be a couple of things today. If you've got your Bible, as we go through, <clears throat> I'm going to suggest that you circle because they're just kind of interesting. This morning, we're going to take a look at the life of a young man named Joseph and an event that took place in his life that demonstrates for us how to recognize and respond when we are confronted with an opportunity to take a shortcut in life. Now last week we looked at King Saul and that was kind of a negative example of dealing with a shortcut and we learned a couple of things. One of the things we learned is how to define shortcut and I told you last week that a shortcut for our purposes this morning is an effort to do the right thing the wrong way. An effort to do the right thing the wrong way. And We talked about examples of shortcuts. Uh, You know a positive example of a shortcut is if you're trying to get to grandma's house and you figure out we can take this road and cut about 10 minutes off our trip, well, that'd be great. Who wouldn't wanna do that to get to grandma quicker? On the flip side of that, if you're having a consultation with your surgeon and he comes in and says, hey, I figured out a way to cut 20 minutes off our surgery time, I'm just gonna skip a couple of steps. No, no, are you crazy? Nobody wants to do that. That's not a good shortcut. Shortcuts sometimes can be great things, and sometimes they can short-circuit your life and your faith. What we saw last week in Saul was a king who had been instructed to wait on God and to wait on God's man. Samuel was the prophet of God, and, and Saul's getting ready to go into battle. And he said, Saul, I know you're going to want to go into battle, but you wait until I get there. And when I get there, I will offer the sacrifice, then you go into battle. We've got God has a way of doing this. You need to honor this way. Saul was in agreement with that. Well, the prescribed time came and Samuel wasn't there just yet. And Saul freaked out and he panicked and he said, bring me the sacrifice. I'll offer the sacrifice. And then Samuel showed up and he realized he'd made a big mistake. Samuel gets all over him and basically God says through Samuel, I'm going to take your kingdom away from you. Now, here's the interesting thing. Saul goes into battle. He wins the battle he 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 wins the battle. God's with him and and is faithful. But on the back side of that, he says, "You know what? You've lost your kingdom. I'm going to take it away from you because you you didn't um, you didn't do it the way I told you to do it. So last week was a kind of a, a negative look at this idea of shortcuts. Today, I want you to see a positive shortcut story and all of the good things that God has for our life. There will be times where we're presented with something that can short circuit our life. And I'm not suggesting that God is the one that presents it. I don't think God tempts us. Um, But as we wait on God to move and show us things and to provide for us and do these wonderful things, give us these gifts that he wants to give us, um, in the course of God bringing some really cool things into our life, we have to manage our choices. And, And sometimes those choices center around whether or not we're gonna opt for the shortcuts that get presented to us. So one of the first questions that you might have is, well Brett, how do I know when I'm confronted with a shortcut, um, how do I know it's a negative shortcut? How do I know that that's something that I should avoid? You you know you've been presented with a negative shortcut when first of all, what's been presented to you contains some form of compromise. If there's compromise in it, you, you know That's going to take me away from God. That doesn't take me closer to God. Second way you know is that there's some level or some form of deceit in it. And if there's deceit in it, you know, I just need to stay away from that. If you're having to compromise or if there's deceit, it's just going to take you farther away from God. And sometimes that can be subtle. And and, and sometimes, um, you know, sometimes you have to pay attention to things like language. Sometimes it shows up in the way we talk because we don't say You know I'm gonna lie about this that's not what we say we say I'm gonna adjust what I say here I'm gonna alter it just a little I'm gonna I'm gonna nudge this when you start hearing yourself talk that way you're moving dangerously close beware you're getting close to a a shortcut what I see a lot of times these days is shortcuts coming in the form of convenience now don't get me wrong I love convenience I've been known to say I'll pay for convenience uh, convenience in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, when that convenience takes you in direct opposition to the Word of God, that's when the lights and bells and whistles should start going off. When you see that it's going to take you further away, when you see that it's detrimental, a negative shortcut is dangerous, you're more likely to, to end up with real regret in your life because it isn't something that God can bless. See, when we opt to obey God, His faithfulness and our faith intersect And we experience God in a way that we never could have imagined before. Um, You know, sometimes people come up to me and say, I just, you know, I feel far from God, Um, or I'm I'm not experiencing God the way I want to. I I don't come out and just accuse them of taking shortcuts, but it's possible that when someone talks that way, they've been taking shortcuts. The, The way you get the best from God is that you do things God's way. You don't You don't try to cut a corner. You don't try to get an edge. Um, The way to avoid a shortcut is pretty simple. You just decide on the front end that when you're faced with a shortcut, you're gonna recognize it and you're gonna not take it if it's a negative thing. And and you're pretty sure that while it might be quicker, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, and it, it might be easier, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, You just don't think God is in it. That's when you just start backing away. That's when you say, no, I'm not going to do that. But When you come up on something that looks like a shortcut, but you don't think God's in it, the decision for you has already been made. I will not do that, regardless of what it costs me personally, regardless of what it costs me financially, or in terms of some pleasure that that may be associated with it. The decision has already been made. I will not choose that shortcut. What you're basically saying is, I'm committed to doing the right thing, and I'm going to trust God to work things out on my behalf. He's going to work things out for me. But we often want to reverse that, and sometimes when we talk to God, what we say is, now God... Here's what I want you to do. Here's how this needs to go. Or we say, God, I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to be responsible for this outcome. <laughs> I'm just telling you that there are times when God will look at you when you talk like that and he will say, well, then go right ahead. Go right ahead. Because he knows he's going to hear from us eventually, right? And when we do that, it's just a matter of time before we step in it. It's just a matter of time before it goes south. The only way you can live your life free of shortcuts, is to make a commitment on the front side of all of it. That when you're faced with the shortcut, I know what my decision is going to be. Genesis 39 tells us the story of the life of Joseph. And and this, from a man's point of view, um, this is a very relevant story for us men. I think all the men in the room are going to hear this story and say, yep, that's about as tough as it gets. Um, Let's get some background on Joseph. He's He's born to a family that has some means. He's his father's favorite son. He, he grows up kind of cushy. Everything's great for him. He has the favor of his father. He isn't necessarily all that popular with his brothers, though, because he has this bad habit of having dreams, and he interprets these dreams, and in these dreams, he sees his brothers bowing down to him. Now, just we're a full-service church at Cross Lane, and I'm, I'm, my name's Brett. I'm your friend. I'm trying to help you. If you're having dreams about your siblings bowing down to you, that's, you may want to see a counselor about that, but definitely do not tell them that you're having dreams, right? Don't tell them. I mean, I have a little brother. Had he come to me and said, Brett, I'm having dreams where you bow down to me. No, 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 no. So finally, they get so fed up with their brother, they've just had it, they're exasperated. They finally say, listen, um, let's throw him into a cistern, and then they have a debate Should we sell him or should we kill him? Should we sell him or should we kill him? This is brothers. And you could, you know, I'm sure if you had been there for that debate, you would have heard from the cistern over in the distance, sell him, right? Said, don't kill him, sell him. Now being a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid, not very old, imagine being that age. You've been ripped away from your family, sold to this caravan that's traveling by, and now... This caravan is taking you to a place where they're going to put you on an auction block and sell you. Days earlier, you have been with your father in the comfort of your home, all the conveniences that came with that, and now you're on an auction auction block captive to the highest bidder. I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm just guessing. But I have to believe that the prayers that Joseph starts praying center something around the idea of, God, I want to go home. Please let me go home. Please let me be free. I don't want to be here. We know from this story that Joseph is extremely devoted and faithful to God. And yet, it would have been very easy for Joseph to take one look at his circumstances at this point and conclude that God had forsaken him. It wouldn't have been much of a stretch for for Joseph to arrive at a conclusion that said, you know what, I think God's checked out on me. I think God's abandoned me. It feels like my prayers are hitting the ceiling and coming right back down. I don't know if God loves me. Eventually, Joseph will find favor with a man named Potiphar, this man that buys him. And and, and he, he finds such favor with Potiphar that Potiphar allows him to rise to second in command in his household and basically puts two things off limits. He says, I don't want you telling me what to eat and leave my wife alone. Those are the only two things. Everything else... Joseph, you make all the other decisions in the house. So things are finally starting to look up for Joseph. It's going well for him. He, he you know, he, he, he basically doesn't tell Potiphar what to eat and stay away from the missus. And Joseph wants his freedom. And I think in his mind, he's probably thinking, I'm so close. At any, any day now, they're going to come in and say, Joseph, you've become so close to us. You're not really like a slave. You're like a a family member and we're setting you free and and you know if you want to go home you can scripture doesn't tell us what joseph's prayers were but i'm assuming that they they centered around going home i want to see my dad again and then joseph gets offered a shortcut and that's in verse 6 of chapter 39 of genesis where we pick this up so potiphar the man who bought him Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And that's how we want to be described, right, guys? Well-built and handsome. Yeah, we all see that in the mirror somewhere. Verse 7, after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. So you have this very attractive, very well-built, industrious, virile young man. And you have this bored, possibly spoiled, possibly neglected and dissatisfied wife of this very powerful, probably pretty wealthy Egyptian man. And I think Joseph was unique. Joseph had a lot of things that probably set him apart. I don't I wasn't there, don't know. She may have been hitting on all the the guys, but I think, she, I think Joseph was unique, and I think she took one look at Joseph and said, I want him. I don't think she was going around propositioning all the guys. I think Joseph was the one that she'd set her sights on. Now, you're 22, 23, 24 at this point. You're far from home. far as you know, you've been rejected by your family. They don't care anything about you. It would be easy to think, at least, I'll just speak for me. It would be easy for me to think, you know what? God has abandoned me. Nobody else seems to care what's happened to me. I've got needs and urges just like any other uh, young, virile male. I think I'll take her up on her offer. This was Joseph's dilemma. He had made some strides, and he had achieved a level of authority and success. He had some achievements in his pocket. You know, he'd he'd done some things. And here's the wife of one of the most influential men in Egypt, and, and it would be easy for Joseph to have thought, man, if I could just gain her favor, if I could get her on my side, if I could impress her in some way. Who knows what I might be able to accomplish? Who knows what she, they might let me do if I had her arguing on my behalf? I, you know, but on the other hand, I could lose everything. I could get in really big trouble. And as much as Joseph loved his father, and as much as he might have wanted to go home, he had made a decision a long, long time ago on the front end of any shortcuts that presented themselves to him, I will not compromise. Verse eight, but he refused. Joseph made a decision. That's what that is. That's a choice. He refused. See, we want to look at our circumstances and we want to say things like, well, based on my circumstances, I don't really have a choice. It's not really my fault. I mean, look at what I've got to deal with. Not Joseph. Verse 8, he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me, except you and now he's going to remind her of something that she seems to have forgotten because you are his wife how then could i do such a wicked thing and sin against god see joseph knows this is a compromise this is i've already you know by the way how could i do this thing against god who who hasn't seemed to answer my prayers, doesn't seem to be all that interested in what's going on with me, he's got me removed from my family, here I am a slave, hasn't allowed me to have my freedom and go home. How could I do this thing and sin against God? In Joseph's eyes, what he sees is black and white. It's black and white. And we live in a culture that it's, sometimes it is, sometimes it's black and white. It's, the, the, the choice is, are you gonna do this or not do it? You're going to fall or are you going to stand sometimes it gets a little muddied. sometimes it's a little fuzzy sometimes it takes a little more discernment a little more prayer a little more you know you got to work through some things sometimes you're not really sure sometimes it's really hard to tell what's the right thing to do but there are tons of times when we make decisions and they're poor decisions where if we had just done what joseph did and in terms of this is a black and white thing On the front end, I'm going to decide if I'm ever faced with that compromise, the answer is no. I'm not going to do that. The answer is no. It's it's kind of like dieting. A, A good diet, a successful diet happens when the person on the diet basically says, these foods are off limits to me, and when they're presented to me, I will not eat them. I have a great illustration for you. Miss Connie Mason goes to this church, and I, I love, I've known Connie for a long time. She's a dear friend of mine. I just love her to pieces, and she is a great baker. She's a good cook of anything, but she makes, I, I went to Cheesecake Factory one time, and the Cheesecake Factory doesn't carry this cheesecake anymore, but they made a Godiva white chocolate macadamia nut cheesecake. It's every bit as good as I just described right there, okay? <laughs> Well, Connie heard me going on and on about this cheesecake. She said, I think I can make that. And she makes it identical. I mean, it's the same thing. She got the, somewhere she found the recipe. It's labor intensive. She works really hard. I greatly appreciate that she makes these. So she makes them for me for my birthday in different times. Then she figured out, I said something about dad liking them. while dad was still alive, uh, you know, when I would, I would take some home to him, and she figured, she said, when you're going home, let me know, and sometimes I'll try to make you a cake and take it home to him. His eyes would light up, you know, it was just awesome. He'd see me come in with that cheesecake. Well, she came in, Cheryl buzzed me in my office the other day, and she said, hey, can you come up front? Well, that's usually not how Cheryl calls me up front. Usually, she'll say, hey, are you in your office, which is my chance to say I'm busy or whatever. She said, would you come up front? I said, okay, so I know it's something good. I round the corner and I see Connie. It's always good when Connie's showing up at church. And then I see the cake thing. I'm like, oh, she's made a cheesecake for me. And then she said, now you need to share this with the staff. And I'm like, what? Share it with the staff. So I waited until the next day and we put it in the refrigerator. I brought it out. Wednesday morning we have staff meeting and I'm, I'm getting the cake out and I'm cutting pieces. And I said, who wants some cheesecake? And Shelby says, I'm not having any cheesecake. And then Tracy's like, no, I'm not having cheesecake. Have you seen Tracy lately? Yep. All the weight he's lost, doesn't he look good? Yep. Makes me sick. So <laughs> do you know how you get that way? Do you know how you get that way? You say no to cheesecake. You say on the front end when they, when they start cutting the cheesecake, I, I don't have that. That's how you get that way, right? Now, to his credit, he said, I do want to taste it, though. He said, I've heard you talk about it. I want to taste it. So he he took a little taste, and he said, man, that's really good. But that's all he had. That's how you be successful in life. That you say, when I get presented with this shortcut, when I get presented with this choice, this way of doing things, you know, cut a corner to maybe not necessarily do it God's way, the answer before I ever get presented with the opportunity is no, I'm not going to do that verse 10 and though she spoke to Joseph day after day day after day, this wasn't just a say no one time and she goes away and she never does it again. That's not what this is. This that she is relentless. she's pursuing him. she keeps coming back, more temptation, sexier outfits, more provocative talk, more seductive every time. He fought through this temptation, over a season, this wasn't just a one-time thing. She keeps coming back at him. Can you imagine being him? And ladies, I don't know what it's like in your head. Listen, guys, we are trying to figure out when it comes to sexual stuff, what's going on in your head because we cannot figure it out, right? If we could, we could get really rich. Um, but I know this. I know that every man that can hear my voice this morning would agree with this, whether they would say it out loud in front of their wife or not. We know this desire. We know this temptation. Okay, This is, this is the pinnacle for us of, of what it means to, to feel desire and to, and to be tempted. And as I'm going through this, talking about what Joseph withstands and how he, he's able to, you know, say no to this woman um, every man just wants to stand and salute because he's he's under the gun we recognize he's under the gun I don't know but I expect Potiphar's wife was probably pretty good looking I mean she's a person of means and in Egypt she probably had opportunities at, at wealth and beauty and and things like that that the average person did not have so she's probably what we would call a looker And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. This kid is 22 to 24 years old. He's not married, foreign country, a slave. And Joseph says, I can't do that. That would be wrong. And day after day, he didn't look for some excuse. He didn't say something like, you know... Potiphar might catch us or you know somebody may walk in that wasn't his excuse His thing was I can't do this this is a shortcut this would be compromising to my character this would be compromising to my integrity who I am and the God I serve if I did this thing with you Mrs. Potiphar it would be a sin against God and I can't do it verse 11 one day He went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. I say this all the time, but if this was a movie, this is where the, you would hear this. Yeah. There's a shark in the house. Land shark, get out, get out. I didn't realize I made that clip so long. (laughs) Verse 12, she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home, and she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought brought us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness. Now let me just ask you, if that's you, how are you feeling right now? (laughs) You just withstood the temptation, said no to what could, I don't know, Miss Potiphar may not have been much to look at. Who knows? It might have been easy. But it might not have been. And what he gets for his faithfulness, what he gets for the right decision, what he gets for his trouble is he goes to prison. And we're told that it's, it's you know, he. would you say that Joseph counts that as kindness? I, I'm just, does it help him cope with being falsely accused and, and maligned and mistreated and misunderstood? My guess is if you had said, Joseph, before this whole incident, Joseph, write down on a piece of paper, define what God's goodness looks like. I don't think prison would have been in the sentence. Joseph says, I want to do the right thing. Oh, Joseph, it's it's gonna cost you, buddy. I don't care. You know, I'm not doing shortcuts. I'm not gonna compromise. I'm not going to participate in deceit. No shortcuts. But Joseph, this could really work out for you. Can you imagine what leverage you would have if you could get Miss Potiphar on your side? Not interested. I don't do shortcuts. But Joseph, you have worked for years and nothing to show for it. She could get, get you as close as you've ever been. She could be the difference maker. Do you know what having the favor of Potiphar's wife could do for you? No shortcuts. Not this way. God has something better for me. That's what Joseph would have said. You know what Joseph did by saying no to Mrs. Potiphar? He postured himself to be used in some way on a grander scale for God. That's what he did. God was preparing something for Joseph that he didn't even know was going on. Joseph has no idea what God is up to. The happy ending of this story is not that Joseph gets out of prison and goes back to Potiphar's house and dies a happy slave. That's not the story. This story ends, it goes on. Joseph goes to prison for his stand. He will be there for a considerable amount of time. Eventually, he is restored to the extent that Joseph becomes second in command in all of Egypt, the number two guy. Beyond that, God will use Joseph's family and Joseph's line to grow the nation of Israel. As the nation matures and becomes, uh, eventually becomes captive in Egypt, and, and it's there that God leads them out of Egypt, and he shows by his mighty power, they see signs and wonders then you come to the new testament you come to jesus and you realize that jesus comes through the line of joseph and here's why i tell you all that all of that hung in the balance of joseph's decision with potiphar's wife joseph didn't see it joseph had no way of knowing all the things that were going to come after this decision all the things that god would want to do to position him as a hero to the israelite people and to you and me you see if joseph fails here if he gives in if he takes the shortcut he forfeits his opportunity to participate in what god would do to use him throughout history for all of mankind to the point that you and i feel it joseph made up his mind on the front end not to take shortcuts and in so doing postured himself and set himself up to be used in a magnificent way for God. So let's talk a minute about our personal life and about our personal visions for life. I told you last week that my dad was a truck driver. Um, and he took great pride in being a professional. He 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 was serious about it. He 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 wanted to be good at it. And to be totally honest, he had to be good at it. Um, you know, as I got older and could understand what he was doing. He kept meticulous log books. Truck drivers have to do that. And he would come in off the road and I would say, Dad, how, you know, what did you carry this trip? And it could be anything from tires to toys to um, soap. I mean, it could be anything. It was different every time. And I would say, how many, how many pounds did you carry? And he would say, oh, we had, it was heavy. We had you know, close to 50,000 pounds. When you've got 50,000 pounds spread over a, a tractor trailer, You've got to be dialed in. You can't, you can't be lazy. You, you can't, you've got to drive defensively. You have to be good at what you do. And so when he taught us how to drive, it was like, I mean, he barked at us a little bit. He was kind of gruff and intimidating. But it really was a master class in how to drive. We, we were very fortunate to have him teach us how to drive. To be in the car with him, he'd be driving along, and he'd, he'd point up on a ridge, and he'd say, look at that deer up there. Like, how in the world did you see that? He just saw when he was driving, he just saw everything. Um, one, one time I was driving with Dad, and we were on the interstate, and we're going along and we're having a conversation, and out of the blue, he says, "Brett, you need the left lane. Well, I'm probably like most of us, I, you know, I grew up just kind of driving at the end of the hood of the car, right we don't we, we sometimes we don't look real far in advance, and I had that problem. I think most young drivers do and And my dad had to be able to anticipate, when you've got all that weight behind you, you've got to know what's happening in front of you. So he had trained himself to look. He would look, you know, the hills on an interstate. You can see them up ahead. He was always looking ahead at the traffic to see what was going on. And he'd already looked up ahead and seen that the traffic, there was one lane that was going to close and that everybody was in the other lane. He said, Brett, you need the other lane. I'm like, how did you? He said, Brett, just look up there just look, look ahead. Stop stop driving at the end of the hood. And and so for most of us, that's what we're doing in life. We're kind of driving and we're looking at the end of the hood. We're not looking ahead. We have no idea the great things God wants to do in our life. And sometimes we short circuit all of that by taking some shortcut, doing something stupid. And God says, well, you know, I had, I had these great plans for you, but I can't, I can't use you like that. I can't, I can't use that decision. I can't do it that way because of the decisions that you made. Your faithfulness, your obedience. How is God going to take those things and use them on a much grander scale for the church, for the kingdom, and for the world? Joseph never knew. He had no idea what God was going to do on the backside of this decision with Miss Potiphar. But aren't you glad Joseph said no? Aren't you glad because... It changed everything, it changed the course of human history. Because all the stuff that followed happened because he was faithful and he made good decisions and he said, I will not compromise. You see, we short circuit what God wants to do in us and through us and for us when we take shortcuts. Avoiding shortcuts really boils down to obeying God no matter what doesn't matter what it costs me. This is what I'm willing to do, whatever the cost is. Our attitude is often, I'll do that, but not if it's going to cost me too much. I'll do it as long as I'm comfortable. I'll do it as long as I'm in control. Joseph said, no, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Proverbs 11 says this. The integrity of the upright guides them. In other words, how are the upright led? He guides us by our integrity. You see, our responsibility is not to get everything figured out on the front end. It's not like, you know, life is some jigsaw puzzle and we got to get all the pieces in place and it all has to fit perfectly. And we say, you know, that's exactly how I want it. Our responsibility is to do the right thing, to be guided by our integrity. This is hard in a world that is constantly offering up choices and offering up shortcuts, and it just seems to me that these days they just get offered all the more abundantly. It's just like a barrage of here's another way that you can cut a corner. And I'm talking about all this like it's easy, like it's just easy to make the right to decide on the front end that I'm not, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to do. Doing the right thing will often cost you something. What we're really talking about this morning is living life with absolutes. We're talking about living life with standards. And to say on the front side, before we even really know what's involved, if I see compromise, if I see deceit, I'm not going to participate in that. Here's the second part of that verse that we just read a minute ago. But the the unfaithful, or we could say the unrighteous, are destroyed. How are they destroyed? By their duplicity. What's duplicity? We don't talk much about that. Duplicity is I say one thing here and I say something else over here. I'm like this with this group, I'm like this over here with this group. And when you involve yourself in duplicity, you're probably shortcutting yourself. You're short circuiting your life. It's you're 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 moving away from God. Duplicitous people are not interested in what God has to say. Duplicitous people say things like, "Well, doesn't the means doesn't matter?" Joseph would have said, "No, the means, how I get there, matters." When you're planning your vacation. To figure out a way to cut some time off the trip so that you can get to the mountains quicker or to get to the beach quicker or to get to the grandkids quicker. There's nothing wrong with that. You want to get there as fast as you can. Everybody understands that. And there's no problem with you trying to figure out a way to do that quicker. But when it comes to living your life for God, taking shortcuts can be devastating. Scripture tells us that it can short-circuit our life and it can short-circuit our faith. It ultimately destroys the person. I talked a minute ago about taking a vacation and taking the shortcut, but what if we flipped that? You're like, Brett, what are you, what are you talking about? What if not only you didn't take the shortcut, but you, you went out of your way? Um, John Redinger, are you in the house? Where are you? Raise your hand. Is he in here? He must have been here in first service. John is here this weekend. He's li- he lives in Arizona now. They used to, he used to go to church here. I played a lot of ball with John and he's back with his dad, and uh, um, he lives in, in Phoenix. I've been to Phoenix several times, and here's what I know. In three and a half hours, you can get to the Grand Canyon. And, and I've, I've made that trip, and, and it's, it's awesome. But here's what I also know. I also know about halfway up toward the Grand Canyon, if you were to divert your trip, if you were to hang a right and head toward Winslow, Arizona, how's Winslow famous? standing on a corner yeah <laughs> put an earworm in your head and you won't be able to sing anything else for the rest of the day <laughs> about halfway before you get to winslow arizona if you were on the way to the grand canyon and you took a right and you started headed to winslow if you if you were willing to go out of your way a couple of hours and spend a, a couple of extra hours to look at something really cool you would see this that's meteor crater now I've been to the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon's cool. I love I loved the Grand Canyon. It was awesome. I am in love with this place. I've been here three times. You are looking at that and you're like, Brett, it's a hole in the desert. I mean, what, what's wrong with you? Well, let me explain some things about this. First of all, the white thing at the bottom that looks like kind of a snake with a flat head on it, that's, a, that's the visitor center. So that gives you some scale as to how big this hole is. The, hill, the hole is almost a mile across, it's not quite a mile across. Um, The history behind, and how this was made. This was made by a meteor smaller than this room, traveling so fast it would have gone from New York to California in five seconds. And it hit the desert and embedded itself, and the history as to, um, and it all happened in an instant. That hole was made in an instant. It killed livestock states away. I mean, the impact, the shock of this was amazing. The more you stand and look at that hole and go to the visitor center and learn about the science behind all this and how it happened. Uh, They've sent NASA, sent astronauts here before they went to the moon to, to show them, you know, where to go get moon rocks and things like that. Um, there's a there's remnants of a plane in the bottom of this the stories that these guides tell I've been able to take a a private walk with a guide around the rim of that it's just it's just a